at 20 years old. Uh, I was a career firefighter um, with uh, three years of volunteer time under my belt and then uh, um, a career firefighter. Um, but the guys really ribbed me. Um, in fact, one of my mentors, Mike Painter, um, he said, how in the hell can you be a firefighter and can't even legally drink alcohol? I said, well, I drink it. I just don't legally drink it. And then he put out a little thing like, welcome, Gary, aboard to MFD, da-da-da, because I was a single hire. I didn't come in with a recruit class. And I was a single hire. And he said, welcome, Gary, to MFD, da-da-da-da-da. The only problem is, is our boots and bunkers was what we called our SOGs back then. He said, boots and bunkers says you can't go to bed before 11, but Gary's mom says his bedtime's at 1030. <laughs> so, you know, so I got ribbed. And it was true because I was younger than a lot of the senior guys as kids. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. In uh, the last episode, I got to talk to Jeff Hudson, one of my colleague, former colleagues in NFPA who was head of a distinguished fire service career uh, in the around Kansas City, Kansas, and uh, in the rest of my road trips take or take have taken me up to Missoula, Montana, where uh, another one of my colleagues lives uh, in Missoula, who's a retired firefighter from the City of Missoula Fire Department and now works for an FPA. Gary Honnold, Gary, good to see you. It's good to see you, Robbie. I'm glad to have you up here. Man, first, thanks for the hospitality last night. I I have now had Montana beef, and. I don't want any other beef again. So the, <laughs> the good. dinner last night was fantastic. Some of the local fare that's uh, local to Montana was amazing. So uh, thank, thank you for that. Thank you for your for your wife's uh, hospitality last night. It was a great time. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you. And um, okay. yeah, I, I didn't realize a lot of your fire service history until we t- started talking a little bit last night. Mm-hmm. And um, but let's go back to how did you get started in the fire department? Where, where did where did that start? And are you from Montana? Um, so I was an Army brat the first couple of years of my life. My dad was career military, served in Special Forces Group, 5th Group Special Forces um, and Vietnam. And then after the war, he got out and he wanted to move somewhere where there was horses and he can hunt and fish. And so Montana was the place to be. So we moved up here when I was two and uh, lived down the Bitterroot, which is just a little bit south of here, and grew up, spent kindergarten through 12th there. And then... Um, I was going to go into physical therapy, but uh, I got involved with a group, Muscadishfi Association, and I went up there as a counselor uh, when I was 14 and did that for a few years and, and kind of the heroes of the camp were the firefighters. And uh, in fact, we had a little kitchen fire and they formed a bucket brigade and put the fire out. And I just kind of thought, oh, you know, that's really cool. I mean, I've always thought firefighting was cool, but I never considered even doing it. And then the year after I graduated from high school, or the summer after I graduated, I went up to camp and uh, one of the Billings firefighters, Tim Stavnis, called him Sven. I said, you know, for 17 years old, you got your crap together. He said, you ever thought about being a fireman? And then literally, Robbie, it was like somebody kicked me in the side of the head. All the gears lined up. I was like, I want to become a firefighter. And um, Click. so, yeah, so I went, <clears throat> went home and sat up till four in the morning trying to figure out how I'm going to tell my parents I'm not going to college because I was registered <laughs> to go into, uh, you know, general studies to get my uh, PT degree, physical therapy. And I told my mom and she's like, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I want to become a firefighter. So I called my uncle, who was a captain in Columbia, South Carolina Fire Department at the time. And he said, get your butt down here. We got a great recruit school. So um, I went to firefighter boot camp, basically. And it was, you lived on campus and um, trained, uh, had classroom all during the day. And then in the afternoon, you went out and did uh, 
practice burns, rappelling, you know, the search and rescue props and everything. And was that part of the South Carolina Fire Academy? Was that the state mm-hmm. state academy? Okay, yeah, yeah I've been there. Um, and it was pretty pretty basic back then. It's really grown. It's impressive to see how much it's grown. But it was just a cinder block building, and it was like a, a boot camp bunkhouse. You had cots. Um, you know, too too high stacked, and everybody slept there. Uh, communal shower and a yeah, real pretty, old fire station was, kind of mentality. And I feel very lucky that I got into the fire service when I did because I was kind of that bridge between today's generation and the good old fashioned smoke eaters, those post World War II, post Vietnam era guys that got hired on. You know, and just had a ton of stories, a lot of knowledge, you know, never took a fire ops class in their life, but they could run a fire scene like nobody's business. So just from the job of hard knocks or the school of hard yeah, knocks. Exactly. What year was that that you went to that? Uh, 1988. I graduated in 88 and you had to be 18 to, to go to the academy and um, you had to be on somebody's roster. So I volunteered at the Florence Fire Department. Uh, at 17 years old, when I t- minute I turned 18, two days later I was on my way to South Carolina to go to the recruit school, and it was about six weeks long. And so then, Florence, South Carolina, you were on no, there, or Florence, Florence Montana. Montana, yeah. Where so my they would take where I grew up. So they would take anybody from any department across the country. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. As long as you were on somebody's roster, the the South Carolina Fire Academy would you let you go. So what? what who who else was represented in that academy? Was oh, it mostly God. South Carolina folks? Or yeah, mostly a couple North Carolina. Most of them uh, were South Carolina. Of course, my nickname was Montana. And my first day there, I had him convinced that if you had a disagreement with a guy, you could go out and draw and in shoot. <laughs> yeah. Um, they asked if we still rode horses and if we had indoor plumbing. I mean, it's like, come on, guys. I know we're small you know, population state, but this isn't the 1800s. It's yeah. 1988. We have indoor plumbing, but we do heat the water on a, on a wood stove. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, there was, I, I remember a couple, uh, Greensboro, um, uh, let's see. Yeah. Quite a few. It was a good class yeah. and I had hair back then. So yeah, they, so did I probably back in 88. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what was it like? Um, <clears throat> tell me about Florence. Um, how, where is that from here? We're in Missoula. 20 miles south. Okay. Yeah, just right when you cross out of Missoula County into Bitterroot, uh, or Ravalli County in the Bitterroots there. Oh, so what kind of <coughs> county, what kind of department was that like? Was it, was, it one station? or uh, One station, all volunteer, probably ran, I don't know, back in the, when I was a volunteer with him for a couple of years before I got a career uh, position. I think we were running maybe 250 calls a year. That's not a, you know, that's yeah, a lot, decent, most, decent pace for a volunteer department. So. Yeah, um, a lot of it is medical aid. We had a lot of really bad car accidents. Um, and um, so, you know, a small town, so you knew everybody. You'd hear an address and be like, oh, no, you know, I know that person. Oh, or wow. went on a car wreck, and it was a gal that um, uh, was in my class and rolled the car, and they lost their infant baby. And that was my very first shift on the ambulance. It, was, oh, it wasn't even when I was a volunteer. So I had a pretty quick plunge into the world of EMS and stuff. So, and got my EMT basic. Uh, I was working two jobs and put myself through EMT basic school. And then Florence fire put me through the D program so I could be EMT D certified to defibrillate. defibrillator. Yeah. yeah. Back, back in the day, the old letters behind the EMT <laughs> yep. D I V I. And they were the old ones with the paddles you had to gel oh. and the oscilloscope and you had to print it out and then it audio recorded your, uh, the whole thing so that you could go in and do the transcript. If you ever delivered shocks, it was pretty archaic back then, but you know, now when I get on a plane and see the automatic external def- defibrillators, I'm like, man, I had to take a whole class for that. Now any Yahoo on the plane can, can get can up there and do it. Yeah. Up. So it yeah, was good. I've been on a couple of flights and, you know, the, the overpopular announcement, is there a doctor on board? 
kind of look around. Nobody's standing up. I'm like, well, I'm a paramedic. Is that that's close enough for you? And here's the AED. I'm like, oh, this is not starting off well at all. <laughs> no. So thankfully, I never got to use one of those. It was a passed out and a seizure. Was the, the two incidents? Oh, uh, okay. But uh, um, so Florence is a volunteer. What kind of work were you doing to to pay your way through uh, EMT? So school? I was a, a checker, uh, night shift at a grocery store, uh, midnight to eight a.m. And then I worked uh, residence halls custodian, stripping and waxing floors, dumping garbage. Um, that, just, part, that part of the job was kind of fire service training, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, I became a hell of a good fire station cleaner, yeah. mopping floors. In fact, when we were stripping and waxing the floors at the fire stations, they'd have my engine company come over because I was the expert janitor <laughs> or whatever. Because we, you know, we'd you strip everything down and then wax it. And so we did a few floors at the fire station, and they just had me come over and kind of help. Your special skills. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very few of them. So I take advantage of it when I could. Well, that was going to be one of my other questions. Based on how you cooked last night, were you the station chef as well? Um, when we did shift dinners, you know, that, that was kind of the tradition in, when I became career with Missoula. Um, that they, they didn't do that a lot. Usually it had to be a special occasion. It wasn't like, hey, you know, we're just going to do a station dinner tonight. But if it was like some guy's last shift or somebody's first shift and they wanted to bring three engine companies over and um, do a big dinner, I usually did either spaghetti because I make bragging. I'm, I make pretty darn good marinara with uh, bolognese and mushrooms. So um, uh -oh. made a I see made another a good... trip for me coming up here. Oh, absolutely. Next time. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of, they'd ask that or I'd do up steaks, like kind of like what we did last night. Oh, they were delicious. Thank you. So how did you, how did you wind up in Missoula? Did, uh... um, so growing up in Montana, I, I, I loved it. You know, I mean, still do, obviously I'm still here. Um, and I went down to South Carolina. I got, um, when completing the fire academy, uh, I got a job offer for West Columbia. Um, I couldn't work for Columbia because I had an anti-nepotism um, thing. And since There's my uncle was there. a captain and I was a boot recruit, um, I couldn't work for Columbia. But West Columbia offered me a job. Um, but I just, I didn't want to live in the Southeast. No offense to the listeners out there in Southeast land. But um, it just wasn't. I, you know, I wasn't wired that way and I wanted to come back to Montana. So I figured um, we had a two year list then. So I came back up to Montana, um, tested for the Missoula City Fire Department. Um, and I figured, well, I'll write out this two year list. If I don't get hired on the two year list, I'll retest again and then move out to the Seattle area because that's like second home to me. I love that area. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was going to test for Seattle Fire and a few of the departments around there. Fortunately, a uh, year and nine months into the two-year list, they called me up and offered me the position. So um, I was pretty excited. So I only tested once for one department. And I know some of you young people out there, you know, that just seems crazy because you got to test so many times. But I just lucked out. And I really honestly didn't think I was going to get the job because the assistant chief of the fire department at the time, the last thing he said to me when I concluded my interview was, well, it's good to see you young people, uh, you know, apply and, and test because you can always come back. And when you hear that from the That's assistant chief. a vote of confidence yeah, right there. I'm out. But I ended up uh, being fortunate that I got offered the job on that first testing list. So I started um, at 20 years old. I was a career firefighter um, with uh, three years of volunteer time under my belt and then uh, um, a career firefighter. Um, but the guys really ribbed me. Um, in fact, one of my mentors, Mike Painter, um, 
He said, how in the hell can you be a firefighter and can't even legally drink alcohol? I said, well, I drink it. I just don't yeah, legally, legally drink, drink it. <laughs> and then he put out a little thing like, welcome Gary aboard to MFD, da, 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 because I was a single hire. I didn't come in with a recruit class. And I was a single hire. And he said, welcome Gary to MFD, NF, uh, MFD um, da, 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 da. The only problem is, is our boots and bunkers was what we called our SOGs back then. He said, boots and bunkers says you can't go to bed before 11, but Gary's mom says his bedtime's at 1030. <laughs> so, you know, so I got ribbed. And it was true because I was younger than a a lot of the senior guys as kids so um so like the first fire department picnic i went to it was like two months on the job and people didn't realize i was a firefighter they thought i was jack weber's kid or bob stage's kid and it was just like no i'm, yeah, I'm, I'm here to job. work I'm on the job. you could look at them like god you're young wow. <laughs> you know so what, what was missoula fire department like back then so we're talking this is probably what in 91 91 okay yep uh, so it was three stations. Um, in fact, uh, one of the stations I was telling you last night, station three, we called the retirement center because we were 10 14s. So two 10 hour days, two 14 hour nights. And, uh, um, you could go an entire block of days and nights at station three and not turn a wheel. Um, in fact, it was so slow that one of the captains would put a dime on the top of the engine wheel. Uh, on the engine on the wheel to see if you even pull it out to start up the pump and do it because it just never <laughs> you moved. never moved and it if the end of the shift the dime was still on top you'd be like you checking the engine <laughs> it's like yeah i did yeah, so I put the dime back yeah exactly <laughs> so um and we were running when i started we were running about 32 to 3500 calls a year with the three stations um we had the university of montana campus which was a, a big demand for service a lot of false alarms and you know just weird stuff like that um and so um, it was cool. I loved working at Station 2 because it responded on everything. Car fires, uh, medical aids inside our, our district or our area, and then any structure fire or car accident for extrication, um, we would respond as a second due or first due, depending on where it was, but um, ran it. And then we ran a ladder truck out of Station 3, so it was a dual-purpose station. You either ran the engine on medical aid or first due fire, but if you were second due, you jumped in the ladder truck, so you had to have your gear ready. You're in the, to, middle, to of the, in the middle of the middle of the bay. Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it was nice. Um, like I said, I'm really happy I got hired at the time that I did because a lot of those old smoke eaters, you know, um, just had a ton of wisdom to impart, and me being brand new, young, never had any kind of real outside experience prior to being hired on. Um, it was invaluable to me to, to just watch them and, you know, learn from medics, you know, guys that, um, if they started getting rattled or, or seemed urgent, you knew things were Something's bad, up. you know? So what did I miss? Their patient circle in the drain. How come Joe Maney's getting, you know, stressed out over here? Something must be going on. And so, um, a lot of that wealth of experience and, you know, a lot of those old timers, they wanted to hold on to it. You know, they wanted to hold their light. Because yeah. they're worried if they shared it, then you would, you know, exceed them or something. But there was a lot of them that were the other way. They wanted to share their experience and they could see the signs of impending backdraft or flashover from outside the structure. And, and it just was like magic to me. I was like, well, I learned that at the academy, but how are you, you know, able to do that? And so um, it was it was great. So when you came to Missoula, did they have to put you through any kind of an academy or school? It was they took the certification you had from South Carolina. And uh, you're in. You yeah, and and I'm pretty sure that being already being an EMT defibrillator certified, and then getting my you can see the patch on the wall right behind you, my interior structural firefighting certification. Yeah, um, that that is the only reason why I got hired as young as I did. But they kind of. Uh, Back then, the culture was that we don't care if you know much because we're going to teach you the Missoula way. So even though I could don my P full PPE and SCBA, 
um, you know, in under 30 seconds. Um, they still had me run through drills and they're like, well, don't do it that way, you know, do this. And you just learned, uh, one of the guys pulled me aside and said, we know, I know you know how to do this, but guys are going to want to teach you because that makes them feel important. So just pretend like it's the first time you've ever heard it, you know, and that was good uh, advice because then you didn't seem like a know-it-all. They felt like they were helping mentor a young guy and you know, you always learn some new trick, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. even if it was something that saved you two seconds, it's like, oh, I didn't do that at the academy, but I see that that's valuable and you just kind of meld that. So, um, yeah, it was fortunate that, yeah. that we didn't do that. And you spent your first year, um, your first month was in the training office and then your first year you were strictly based out of headquarters. You got assigned to shift, um, but you were the riding backwards. I mean, you were the tailboard firefighter making plugs, you know, uh, hydrants and, uh, that, you know, and then going first in on the nozzle if you were first due and always the one to have to carry the gear, you know, the medical gear oh. after the call. The, and back then we had the big oxygen cylinders and the plastic portable cases and the med kits. And um, so you just kind of earned your stripes and um, did what you were told and um, did well. So, yeah, it was that um, a couple of stories I've heard about people who get new to departments and, oh, I've went to the South Carolina Fire Academy. I know it all. And the reputation you wind up getting after that is not um, not a positive one, I would think. No. Um, and that's true. And, and I saw that from subsequent hires that got hired after me that had a little bit of firefighting experience. They'd come in and be like, I know this, I know that. And boy, the old lieutenants would be just lay, weighing, laying in yeah. wait for them. Yeah. You know, just like, all right, you think you know everything. <laughs> Let's do this. We're going to drill on tor tormentor ladders for a whole afternoon oh, and geez. putting up the 45 foot, you know, extension ladders and stuff. It's like, oh God, shut your mouth. Yeah. Don't you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was in a five-person recruit academy and uh we got a little cocky one day and our lieutenant oh. at the time jim graham who wound up being our deputy chief went okay get a three-inch hose with a straight pipe on the end of it and no va no valve he goes hang on to it and he said i want you to get it to the third floor of the smokehouse and five of us a three-inch hose with no valve we just oh. beat us to death and we're like okay lieutenant we're <laughs> we understand we're, we're humble we're stupid <laughs> we don't know anything so, uh, how did you, uh, you, you ultimately, I saw the, see the nationally registered paramedic card up here as well. Uh -huh. When did you go get your paramedic? Um, so actually myself and another firefighter, Mike Sauerbeer, uh, were the first two that Missoula put through. We had hired some people that already had their NREMT paramedic, um, certification. Um, but the department's like, okay, we we're, we're not going to do transport, but we want to be full ALS. Um, and so they paid for two of us to go through paramedic school. Um, very good school. Um, I can't say enough about the quality of instructors and how challenging it was. It's probably the hardest um, education experience that I had as a firefighter out of all the stuff. Who was that? Where, where was the, where um, was the So it was a local uh, ambulance service called Mo Missoula Emergency Services Incorporated. Messy, we call them. Um, I worked part-time for them when I was an EMTI, and then um, – I went and did other part-time jobs and uh, got to go to the paramedic class and the instructors were great. They were, you know, physicians assistants and paramedics both. Um, one of them was the teaching assistant at the cadaver lab for the A&P for the University of Montana. So we actually got college credits for the A&P section. Oh, nice. We'd go in and do full uh, anatomy and physiology workups and stuff. And um, so, yeah, it was good. It was a long class. Um, they accommodated us to be on shift um, or if we were off shift, 
you know, they uh, uh, compensated us for all that time, especially all the clinical hours, um, about a third. Yeah, we so were talking we, about it last night. Yeah, so, you know, we turn in our comp time slip to say, hey, here, we're done with the class. Here it is, because you had to, they wouldn't give it to you unless you successfully completed the class. So turned in our comp, Mike and I turned in our comp time slips, and the chief at the time about had a coronary. 1,500 hours, there's no way we're doing that. So when all was said and done and the union negotiated it out, it ended up being we got about 20 minutes for every hour we put in, so about a third. Um, but still, 490 some hours of comp time is nothing to sneeze at. That's so, a, that's and a, I got a great education out of the experience. It's a heck of a vacation leave balance. If, yeah, uh, to go I don't know fish or something in Montana. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So, well, what was uh you mentioned three stations? What uh, tell me a little talk a little bit about Missoula, the city of and, sure. And D, I mean, it's it's coming into town. It's incredibly rural, right up to the edge of the town. It feels like. Um, how much response did you have? It was truly urban response, or how much of that kind of you know wildfire out in the out in the wilderness kind of stuff did you guys run? So first due response, there was very little wildfire. Um, but what a lot of guys would do is get your red card certified and then go out and on contract or large fires. And so the the state or whoever the agency controlling the jurisdiction of that fire would hot you know say, hey, we need structure protection. We need a Type One engine and three crew. Um, to come and then they would pay for the engine the city would get the money for the engine and again like we were talking about last night it went to the general fund instead of coming back to yeah. the fire department so that was kind of a bummer you know um, so the city looked at it as a cash cow and then the guys would go out and you'd get paid time and a half um, and if you were on a two-week or 21 day assignment that adds up quickly and then if you were if you were supposed to be on shift they would hire overtime to backfill your vacant position within the city limits but then um, and you went to straight time during those hours and then anything over so a lot of guys would just knowing they were going to go on a fire they'd madly call trade shifts with everybody so that they were off the whole time so they could get that sweet paycheck uh, and then and pay pay guys back and so the majority of our calls probably i don't know 80 percent 75 to 80 percent of our calls are were ems or still are but ems based the other ones of course would be the miscellaneous hazmat uh, structure fire, vehicle fires, dumpster fires. Um, so majority of what we did was EMS, um, and we just respond inside the city limits. And geographically, Missoula is not unique. I'm sure there's lots of places like it, but we're the hub of five valleys. So no matter which horizon you look in, you've got a mountain range. Um, but then these river valleys go off. And so the population of Missoula, when I got hired on, was about 45, 47,000 people, but you take the service area of all those outer communities like the one I grew up in, and you're looking at, you know, was back then was probably close to 85,000. Now, Missoula's 73,000 population, and the service area is over 117,000. So um, it's grown tremendously. So now uh, Missoula fires up to five stations. Um, that's when I retired in uh, 2002. Uh, what are we at here? 2012. Um, when I retired in 2012, um, we had five stations and um, running uh, about 10,000 calls a year. So it's really call for service is huge now. And they're looking at a station six. But the city is because of the mountain ranges around us, we're very geographically restricted to grow. The only way we can grow now is west out towards the airport. And um, so everything around us is Missoula rural. Uh, fire district 
Um, and Is that then a it, different department? Completely different department. Um, we do a lot of mutual aid or automatic response agreements, obviously. Um, in fact, their headquarters fire station is wholly surrounded by city. <laughs> so the city grew that much and annexed out that their their headquarters station is actually inside the city limits of Missoula mm-hmm. um, City. Right. And uh, so they, they cover everything in Missoula County outside of that. And Missoula County is a large geographic footprint. And outside of Missoula, it's getting more and more populated, but it's still pretty sparsely populated, which is, is nice, you know. Yeah. I remember coming in yesterday, it was like across the, the sign, it said entering Missoula County. And I looked down at the GPS and it was still 50 miles to get to your house. And I'm like, this this county is huge. It is. It's yeah. Massive. And that's very typical for Montana. Yeah. Well, uh, talk about the EMS side a little bit. You guys, you said you, uh, you ran EMS but didn't do transports. Mm-hmm. How did that work? So we have a tiered uh, response system. Um, the ambulance uh, service, which was privatized, um, ran out of one central location, kind of smack in the middle of town so it was good but if you were on the far south side of town or north end especially as the city grew um, the ambulance response times could be upwards of 10 to 12 13 minutes and so of course it made sense send the fire department there stabilize package get ready to go Um, and then when the ambulance would show up if they had a paramedic on board we'd transfer care over to them and they could transport unless it was real bad and we needed cpr and you know bagging and compressions and all that so then we'd have one of the firefighters jump in the back of the rig and um, help the ambulance and then we just tail them to the hospital and pick up the crew member and then resupply from the ambulance because they're going to bill them for everything anyway so we'd get our glo- you know uh, o2 masks and everything that we had used uh, patches for the defib if we had to innovations tools all that stuff we just kind of swap that out so have a very good uh, working relationship with the ambulance especially back when i worked there have they expanded to more locations now across the city? or um, they, they did for a while, but I'm not sure if they still do. They, yeah. they opened another one on the north side of town, but I don't know if that's still running or not. I think that it's seasonal in the summertime when the demand for service is so high, they might staff it. But they staff two full-time ALS rigs and then have a third crew call-in. So if you had something real bad, then they could get third crew to come in and stand by for more 911 dispatches. Because the ambulance service did the entire county. Um, uh, and so yeah, they get huge. pulled out so they, you know, they could have a 45 minute drive time to get to the scene just to get there and then, uh, you know, get the patient and 45 minutes back to the hospital. It's a long, long wait time to sit there and hang out. It is. So, and so we, we did a pretty good job in the city limits of being able to, you know, get those IV starts, innovations done, maybe the, even the first round of cardiac drugs pushed, um, maybe cardiovert if we could. Um, and then the ambulance would, would get there. So, um, it just, it, it was a good system. It, it worked pretty darn well, um, for EMS, yeah. um, you wound up going into being the fire marshal. How did uh, how did you change that job? Get from operations into that <laughs> pesky uh, prevention side of the shop. So that's that's a good question. I um, being so young, getting hired on, I never had a second job. You know, I never worked construction. I never did. You know, growing up, it was bucking hay bales and changing sprinkler pipe. But that doesn't really besides the physical aspect of it doesn't really train you to be a firefighter and i my goal was always to i want to be a captain if i get it higher than captain battalion chief or assistant chief or whatever that's great but i want to make sure i get those captain's bugles um just because it, it meant a lot to me and i knew if i was going to get promoted i need to get some education under my belt so after about nine and a half years running a um on the firefighter medic side of things, um, I applied to go into the Fire Prevention Bureau um, because I knew I'd learn about fire alarms, sprinkler system, building construction especially, and all that. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not really interested in code enforcement and the people. 
the the culture in Missoula at the time was if you couldn't hack it as a firefighter, you went into the bureau. Uh-huh. Um, and then they had two young, before I went in the bureau, when I was still in ops, they had two young men that were well-educated, smart, Tony Kate and Pat Aldewinda. And they came into the department and they had a totally different perspective. You know, it was Missoula Fire. You can't hack it. You go to the bureau. And Pat and Tony were like, no, that's important. And they went in the bureau. And then all of a sudden the old timers are like, hey, wait a minute. These guys are competent. They, they rub people the wrong way personality-wise, but these guys are competent and they're good. And they... um. And they went into the bureau and I saw that and was like, you know, I could do that because I was looking for educational opportunities and I saw that. And so when one of them rotated out, I applied um, and got uh, got accepted and found out that I actually liked it. Um, the, 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 the learning was challenging. Um, getting the NFPA certified fire protection specialist certification was a lot. It was next to be getting paramedic. It was the hardest, you know. Uh, undertaking to try and get certified in something. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. So I was a fire inspector investigator um, for a while. And then um, the guy that was the assistant fire marshal um, bailed out. And then I got promoted to assistant fire marshal um, and then had, you know, you kind of have your specialties. So mine was large group assemblies, concerts, football games, all of that. And um, the University of Montana campus, the, which is a 10,000 rooms, you know, multiple dorms and buildings and stuff. And so um, anytime there was something going on at the U or football games, because in Montana, the University of Montana, Grizzly football is pretty big. Um, Montana State's getting there, but the Grizz were still, especially at that time, they were the the it. And um, they had expanded the football stadium to hold about 25,000 people. So on Grizz football game days, they were the fourth largest city in Missoula. Just, <laughs> just the just stadium. The stadium was population wise was larger than all but four of the um, cities in Montana. Oh, um, so, so it was a big undertaking. Is that a state school? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. where does this uh, in back in Virginia? It was, if it was a state school. The state fire marshal had authority over it, not not the locals. So, we really didn't have a lot of horsepower authority in that where where did it fit in missoula um technically it was the state's responsibility just like in virginia but the state fire marshal's office in montana was i mean it's a huge geographic state so they were spread out i mean i think they had four deputies to cover the entire state so you had one deputy uh delegated to the entire western montana from the canadian border to idaho from the continental divide basically over to um the idaho going west so it was a huge geographic area and the the state just knew you know they basically were like hey we don't have the resources for this so um Missoula, and this was prior to me being in the bureau, said, hey, our firefighters are going to be the ones that have to respond into that place. And if we don't have any kind of quality assurance on code enforcement, we can't send, you know, in good faith, send these firefighters into these chem labs or any of these buildings if we don't know that they've been inspected. So they dealt, the state fire marshal's office delegated um, informally that the Missoula Fire Department would do the code enforcement for there. So any new construction, they submitted the plans to us and I had to review them and, you know, approve and then all phases of construction we come and do inspections and then like i said any kind of um uh large group things like you see up here the yellow stones or the yellow stones the rolling stones concert rolling stones. Oh, that's wow. at the football stadium and so and that's the set list so um you know after the station nightclub fire they were saying hey uh you know we want to make sure that if there's any flame or pyro attacks uh, uh effects during the concert that uh you have to have 
firefighter fire watch. And so I got paid overtime to sit on the stage during a Rolling Stones concert next to the pyro board. And you can see on this uh, laminated set list that they've got all the pyro cues. And so I got paid overtime to sit and watch the Rolling Stones. And it was so close that as Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were running on this uh, horizontal um, runway out to, you know, pump up the crowd i could have reached out and tripped them it was oh, that wow. close so it's pretty cool not a big rolling stones fan but it was just an ex the experience of it all so i got to be in on all the concerts i got a private uh, pearl jam concert because they were doing sound check and it was me and the sound guy the only ones in there and i was doing the pre-check inspection to make sure the shunt trip if the alarm went off it'd kill the pa and so we were just kind of doing that and the guys got up the guys from pearl jam got up which is one of my favorite all-time bands and uh they started playing and Eddie's singing with his head down and I had my uh, white uh, admin polo shirt with my belt badge on and I just kind of walked up right to the rail in front of the stage and was watching him like wow this is cool and they played like four or five songs and Eddie was deep in thought singing and he looked up and saw me and kind of um, jerked hey, back well, I, like no I have one's a, supposed to be in fan. here and then he there's saw my fan. badge and he nodded and gave me a thumbs up and so that was pretty cool so just getting that experience and, and oh, learning cool. you know how to do that was was pretty cool so I enjoyed that aspect of the job a lot and actually I, I enjoyed almost all aspects of working in the fire prevention bureau it, it gave me an education um, that I just couldn't have gotten any other way going to the National Fire Academy fire prevention technical curriculum the investigation curriculum learning how to do interview and interrogation I mean there was just a ton of stuff my kids gave up trying to lie to me when they were young because <laughs> like, it just all the, the training you get it's like nah you put you're the not... spotlight on oh, them and say, yeah, have a seat exactly. we're gonna have a conversation <laughs> sweat them out under the heat lamp um, so yeah it was great and and then what I found out when I went back into operations um, to jump forward a bit um, that my battalion chiefs if we had a false alarm or something like that you know and and my engine crew um responded uh, you'd hear the bc todd would call up hey han will come in and look at the panel and we go in is. and that i almost give like a little class at two in the morning i'm giving them kind of a little alarm class and you know especially with the new alpha numeric uh, panels instead of the old addressable where just a red led light would come on you know it'd tell you the zone the detector number and all that so um so the 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 higher ups or incident commanders really liked it if it was a false alarm or a sprinkler activation to have Honold show up. And then the other thing was the culture when we had a work and structure fire is you just overhaul the heck out of it. And then the the crew, the investigators would come in afterwards and be like, well, I got nothing to look at put, here. It's put down, all this back, would you Yeah, please? it's down to wood uh, studs in the subfloor and nothing else. So I can't even see burn patterns. So um, that, it, that culture change really changed where the crews had just knocked down the fire, keep the hot spots, wait for the investigators to get on scene and do a cursory look and then figure out how to proceed with uh, overhaul at that point. So you wound up doing investigations too. Did mm -hmm. uh, were you were you sworn law enforcement or were you just doing origin and cause type stuff? Um, very good question. Uh, in the state of Montana, fire investigators are not peace officers, so we had no arrest power, no Miranda, which kind of ego wise sucked. Um, but then when I looked at how you could use that to your advantage, it was much better because if you're not law enforcement, you're not obligated to Mirandize. Um, and I always use the line, hey, man, I'm not a cop. I'm just a firefighter. I'm just trying to figure out how this fire started. And it was amazing how free people would give it freely. People would give you information thinking, <laughs> well, he's not a cop. But if it was a bad one, um, a fatality or a really malicious arson, we worked with one of the city detectives um, and they didn't know anything about fire. 
Um, so they would just leave the specific questions up, but they would just be there to do, and they would Mirandize them, you know, in the beginning. And if we were in the interrogation room, if we were just standing at the bumper of the fire truck uh, or over the hood of my investigation vehicle, you know, you didn't have to Mirandize because they could walk away at any time. And it was amazing some of the statements that you would hear him say, like, "You're really telling me this? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously? Okay, right. I'm gonna write, I'm it, write down. it down. I'm taking uh, notes, and then refer to." Um, that, but I will say, uh, I won't say names, but uh, we had a county um, attorney that was, you know, county attorneys basically get, uh, yeah, the, um, the, uh, they basically get elected or reelected on their conviction percentage. Well, as you know, arson convictions, depending on the study you read, 5 to 12% conviction yeah. rate on arson because all of the evidence seems to be circumstantial, not direct. Um, except for with today's video technology and cameras everywhere, you got a lot more concrete yeah. evidence. And we had a couple times where we wanted to, you know, have the county attorney uh, press charges and he wouldn't do it. And we were getting frustrated. And then one time we had a kind of a contentious meeting with him and uh, it was a, a, you know, a arson fire we're working and they didn't really want to charge. And uh, we said, well, we've got all this evidence and we've got blood off the, where they broke in and, you know, we could do DNA testing. And the county attorney turned to us in this closed door meeting with everybody and said, you put the person in the room with a match in their hand and all all press charges. Well, that's a pretty hard, yeah. high bar to meet but because he didn't want to ruin his conviction percentage by having unsuccessful arson didn't cases. Lose a case. So it was hard. Yeah. Um, unless you almost put them in the room with a match or had videotape of them entering or leaving the scene, uh, they weren't really keen or got a confession out of them, yeah. which was good. Um, but other than that, they weren't going to press charges. So, um, so no sworn peace officer status. It was just do your origin job, cause. origin and cause. Um, and then if it was a crime, if you determined it was a crime, call in the detectives and that. So, and I think that's still the system there. I went to the academy and did that managing arson prevention and control. And you basically had to write up an arson task force plan for your city using the data from your city. And I went back and. Um, I had a chief that was kind of crusty at the time. I won't say his name. And I got back, and I was so proud. I got 100% on my final paper. They actually asked me if they could use mine with redacting the city and some of the name stuff, if they could use it as a template for future oh, classes. Wow. So I came back feeling pretty cocky. I'm like, yeah, I got I this got figured this. out. So I walked into the chief's office, and I sat my final paper down and said, all we need is a little overtime money. We got old turnouts we can outfit the cops on. We can send them back to the National Fire Academy if you sign off on it. I had all these grandiose plans. Chief looked up from his desk over the top of his glasses and says, you know what a fire inspection is, don't you? And I said, yeah. He goes, why don't you go do them? And that was it. I mean, that was the end. Never talked Never about the RC Task Force again. And it was like, okay, I get where we're coming from yeah. here. Don't make waves and don't get too smart. So Send me to another class, boss. Yeah, exactly. Pay to send me to another class. So you went back to, to the station or to operations after that, mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned getting promoted to captain. It sounds like there's no lieutenant or sergeant position in the department. It goes straight to captain as a company officer. Yeah, when I first started, um, when we had three stations, we had, each shift would have um, two captains, and then the battalion chief was based out of headquarters, and then they had a lieutenant. And the lieutenant was basically an engine company offer but since he was in the same station as the bc the city kind of devalued that position mm -hmm. and then through negotiations um, a couple contracts in um during my tenure um they kind of realized oh wow this is uh this is actually a captain position because bc might be out in another district 
or a response area and you're you're calling the shots and so we were able to get three captains positions and now you know we have five stations so there's five captains on every shift um, and then if we were short shift instead of uh, hiring overtime they pull the bc and make him ride the engine and you talk about a crusty ins- uh, company officer when the bc who's used to you know running around and just picking up reports and st- taking cleaning supplies to the station and pick that all of a sudden he's got to jump back on the rig and be a smoke eater again. Uh, run, run the front seat or do they make him ride jump seat? No, they made him ride front as, uh. as the company officer. Um, but what was funny is, um, this is prior to two and two out. And I think the statute of limitations is over as far as responsibility <laughs> for the city. My first five years on the job, I, I went in solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was an Oselman, I went in solo. The captain would, maybe have his bunker coat and his helmet on no scba not maybe even just the hip boots because back then they were still wearing hip boots even though they weren't approved um and they might go around with a pipe pole and knock out some windows for horizontal uh, ventilation but if you were waiting for your captain to mask up and go in behind you you were never going interior and i was a having my interior structural firefighter that was my gig i mean there's no better rush than going in a burning building first in on the nozzle so you know you he it was always the thing and we had open air cabs back then so the captain did slide open the slider lean back towards your jump seat and say if you feel like you can knock it down go in but don't go any further in any further than you feel comfortable well being a rookie or young firefighter You're comfortable send, with send me in, coach. you're too stupid to, to know, you know, <laughs> ignorance and, is bliss. <laughs> yeah, and so, exactly. And so, you know, if you waited for your captain to mask up and some of them were good, but boys, a lot of the old school guys, they, they just that wasn't the way we did things. And then that was a real culture change, because even before I went back into the bureau, it was like, no, you go in. We still didn't do two in, two out, but we are not sending single people, people in. So we had two in and then we went to the two in, two out. And the, basically, unless it was an immediate life rescue um you waited at the front door so you'd mask up bleed the air off your nozzle make sure you had good pressure and then as soon as you heard the air brake set on the second do engine go and it was like kick the door and that was like a starting gun and then you'd go in and and either perform a rescue usually if if we were waiting outside there was no rescue it was just to go in and extinguish for contents so good times man oh yeah uh, you you ultimately left uh Missoula and came to work for NFPA. What was that transition like? Um, so back when I was pretty new in the bureau, they what we referred to as the code wars. Um, the uniform fire code was being sunset. They weren't going to do another one. So the edition 1997, they weren't going to do a 2000. So NFPA and ICC started courting states to say, hey, there's no more uniform fire code. Why don't you go this way? And so I was on the executive board as secretary treasurer for the State Fire Marshals Association. We used to have a Montana Fire Marshals Association um, for all the, but with only 14 class one cities, it was a pretty small group, but we still had that. And so we were having meetings in, you know, mid middle of the state, Helena or Bozeman or somewhere, and they'd come and do their sales pitch. This is why you should go with NFPA. This is why you should go with ICC. And the rep for ICC at the time blatantly lied to us and said, oh, we'll provide this training. We'll give everybody free books. We'll do this. We'll do that. And um, then they weren't, when we really push came to shove, you could tell they were balking at it. Um, And I'm not saying that about ICC, just that person, their regional person. Um, But I got to know who the regional person, his name was Dave Nuss at the time, um, was the regional director for NFPA. And I kind of saw him and he was a really good guy took him at his word. Um, and I'd already, you know, known about a little bit, I, I could spell NFPA, but that was about it, you know? Um, but, um, being new to the bureau, I saw the importance of that. And then I kind of noticed that 
everything in the IFC, the fire, uh, international fire code referenced NFPA standards. So I'm like, why would we adopt something that has to reference when NFPA writes the fire code that's almost word for word what the UFC was because they, um, UFC had an agreement with Western fire chiefs and NFPA to have that intellectual property. Well, ICC just basically took that concept and a lot of the verbiage changed the section numbers and made the international fire code at the time. Um, so I, I was, a uh, pretty, um, pretty sold on NFPA at the time, but there was a couple cities that uh, didn't want to do it because their building officials were working under the IBC, of course, mm -hmm. boring code talk, I know. <laughs> um, but uh, um, And they didn't want to fight with their building officials over requirements. Uh, and so uh, there's a couple bigger cities. Uh, Missoula was big and, and we were in, but there was two cities in particular, Billings and Great Falls, that basically said, we're, you know, we don't want to go. We're going we're gonna to go with IFC. Well, the whole mandate from the state fire marshal's office was we want one code one in Montana. Code. So all the trades, no matter what city they're working in, know what they're expected of. Which makes sense. Did, yeah, it, no, it does make sense. Um, but we took a vote. And we voted to go with NFPA. And then um, the two cities said, well, we're not going to. And so I turned to the fire marshal of Billings, and I'm a young fire <laughs> inspector. And I just said, so you're telling me, Frank, that if you if the, the vote didn't go your way, but you're just going to take your ball and go home. All of us are here so that we can be one unanimous voice. You lost the vote, but you're still going to hold out. So why why are we even holding this mock trial? I think I said dog and pony show. I was pissed. <laughs> and... Um, so we went NFPA one and Dave Nuss was sitting in the room when I did that. And so we kind of struck up a conversation. So that was kind of my experience about my opinion of the two code development organizations was, you know, NFPA, I, I like them, ICC, because of one bad regional person, that was that tainted my opinion of ICC. I was like, okay, these guys are shysters, in my opinion, back then. I have a different opinion now, but back then. Um, and uh, so got to do that. And then um, NFPA started up the Public Educators Network. Well, part of my job as a fire inspector was to, to head up our public education programs. And um, so the state fire marshal said, hey, NFPA starting up this new public educators network program. We need a rep from the state of Montana. Would you do it? And I said, absolutely. So I kind of got in as just a non-paid person, yeah, but I helped disseminate MOU. pub ed and yeah. the fire prevention week resources and all that. Well, that lasted for about a year and a half. And then the person, NFPA had a contract employee that was the specialist. And um, that person that was the Northwest region specialist got a new job and couldn't be the specialist anymore. So NFPA came to me, Judy Kamaletti, bless her soul, um, came to me and said, would you like to become a contract employee? Well, it had worked out perfectly because I had just gone back into operations and could trade shifts and, and uh, travel to go to different states and meet with the state network people. And so I was able to to say, yeah, I'll take it. So it was a you know nice contract position. I started on January 1. But then the person that was the regional director, the position that we hold, um, but for the Northwest was named uh, Crosby Grindle, and he was leaving to go work for Fire Service GPO. And NFPA asked him, well, who in your region do you think could step up and be a director? And thank goodness for Crosby, because he said, I think Gary could do it. So I've got five months as a contract employee and full-time still with the fire department as a contract employee for NFPA, and they call and offer me the full-time gig, and I was eligible to retire. You could retire at 20 years, and I was only 41 at the time. Oh, and um, so, you know, so the I'm benefits thinking, of starting early. Yeah, being a double dipper, I'm going to retire, draw this pension. So when they officially offered me the position, I put in my two weeks, I'm going to retire notice to my chief. And, um, and then, uh, 
I retired on August 10th and August 13th, uh, I was on a Friday and then August 13th was a Monday and I showed up at NFPA headquarters for new hire employee uh, orientation. So I literally was retired for two days. A weekend, a weekend retirement. Yes, exactly. Well, you've got kind of the, I think the, the envious region of, at least I envy it because <laughs> you've got your home state of Montana, which is beautiful up here. You've got Alaska and you're heading to Hawaii next next week. Yeah, Wednesday. Uh, to kind of deal with some of the aftermath of those fires they the fires they had out there and was it on maui was yeah the, uh, maui was the, and there was fires on the big island too but maui was the really the one that got hit hard yeah, yeah. And well. lots of deaths so yeah i love my region it's huge geographically nine states and they're all big states so yeah. um i like to say that i'm alaska to nebraska <laughs> <laughs> that's it yeah oh wow well you um obviously a long fire service career um the the issue around firefighter health and safety now is obviously a big deal and i know your your recent medical issues do you want to delve into that and share that story sure. a little bit uh, and i share it when i give talks especially when i give uh classes on the uh, nfpa 1500 series the uh, medical health and wellness. wellness um so um you know between being a fire investigator and a responding firefighter especially the last two years of the part uh, my career um you know, felt pretty good. You know, I mean, you go on fight, you know, Robbie, you go on an investigation and maybe have a headache for a couple of days afterwards because mm-hmm. you're not fully SCBA. And as you delayer stuff, those fumes come up and hit you in the face. And so um, and then, you know, even back in the culture, when I was a boot recruit all the way through my captain, you know, as soon as the air monitoring said, oh, two levels are good and COs down, boy, you pull your mask, not even a partial off. rebreather. You just pull your mask mm-hmm. and um, start finish an overhaul and uh i mean my old battalion chief would be standing there as we're doing overhaul smoking a cigarette point hey you got glowing embers up there pull down the drywall you know yeah. so he's walking through the fire scene old smoking. Salt. yeah and um so had no idea retired from the fire department and then about eight years after i retired and i was working full-time for nfpa i was uh gonna go play golf with one of the fire chiefs presidents of the fire chiefs association in idaho and um i was in my hotel room about six in the morning and um kind of woke up to my left arm seizing jerking just the arm. yeah and i thought i'm having a stroke and that's like you moron you're a paramedic you know damn well it's not a stroke you're having a seizure and i was lucid and conscious through the whole thing and so i canceled the golf trip got my butt back to missoula and i told my wife i said hey if i start to seize again just call 911 right away and um so sure as heck, the next day I got home on a Saturday, Sunday evening, we're just about ready to get up and go um, stand up and head upstairs to make dinner. And I could feel my left leg start to go and then my left arm go. And so I just said to Sam, kind of stuttering, call, call, you know, and I uh, went into a full left side. It was uh, semi, just uh, not bilateral. It was one side, my left side and um, started season. And I heard my wife calling 911. And so... Um, I had a really nice t-shirt of my favorite band, Pearl Jam. So I didn't want them to cut it off me. So I'm at once I could start speaking again, I had my wife switch Change me out. The shirt. Yeah. So if they had to cut it off, um, and then the engine shows up and lo and behold, the acting captain on the engine was my tailboard firefighter when I was a oh, captain. Wow. So, um, so they took me to the hospital, long story short, um, got the evaluation and they're like, yeah, you have a brain tumor. And I kind of figured it, I even knew before the second episode, I was like, something's going on here. That wasn't a normal tonic colonic seizure like you see with the grand malls this was very focalized to my left side so i'm like something's wrong you know something's wrong and so yeah they did the um cat scan or mri 
both and then came back and said, yeah, you got a tumor. Um, so when I met with the neurologist, neurosurgeon neurologist, um, he said, yeah, it's been growing for about 10 years. And when we backtracked, it was my last two years in the department, something I got exposed to. With um, no, it, no symptoms for those 10 years no, until this. Not this a thing until I had it. And so went through chemo, went through radiation, the whole nine yards, and then um, got a clean bill of health. So I'm in remission, but um, it's inoperable. So it's still hanging out inside my head. So you had no, right no real surgery to get rid of it. It's, it's there, but the chemo and radiation kind of just blunted it. Yeah, because it hadn't established its own blood. The tumor um, hadn't established its own blood supply yet. So the, it was very responsive. And the type of tumor I have, it's very responsive to those therapies uh, but they couldn't operate so every six months i go in they get that we do an mri yeah it looks good the margins are still the same um, but when i was diagnosed i had a three to five year uh, that, that, that's what the doc told me is i had three to five years and last week no this week was three years to the day so um i'm in and uh growing up i was very involved with the muscular dystrophy association and we had some uh, my dearest friends uh the young man in the wheelchair that you see on the mm -hmm. picture on the wall there. Um, when he was diagnosed, they told him he, he would die at 16, that he wouldn't live past 16. And he lived to be 23, 24. So every birthday after his 16th, we started counting backwards. So negative one, negative two. So when I get to five years, if I'm still around, I'm going to go, I'm negative not, one. I'm not 54 or 55. I'm negative one, negative. And I'm just going to count the negatives until my time's up. So, Man. well, I hope that number's huge. Well, I, me too. Incredibly, incredibly large in the negative side of things. So. Yeah. So, and you know, the, the, uh, growing up literally, um, maybe I'm still not grown up, but growing up in the fire service, you see some horrible things. You know, I went on calls where a guy was taking his parents out for an Easter drive and, um, in the city limits, rolled their car on a kind of a winding road up Grant Creek, um, killed both of his parents and he was injured. Um, and he was devastated and you just kind of be like, man, that five minutes before that, they were just driving down on a nice a sunny day. Easter day and their lives were completely changed. And as you know, you see hundreds of those stories, just the randomness of life being snuffed out. So that kind of prepares you for, you know, Hey, your time on here is finite and it can end at any moment. Um, and then the other perspective that really helped me deal with it mentally and emotionally was being involved with the muscular dystrophy association for 27 years, um, and having friends that are just, I mean, heart and soul, best friends you could ever have and their lives being snuffed out in their early twenties and the way that they dealt with that with dignity, um, and perseverance and overcoming, you know, things that we, um, would take for granted, um, like your first kiss, your first date, you're getting your driver's license. Um, and um, they just never get to experience those things, but they live life to the fullest and they they just deal with it with dignity, going in for multiple back surgeries to get your spine fused, all of that stuff. And I remember we were up at summer camp, a bunch of firefighters were sitting around uh, the campfire um, and there was a couple of the older MDA kids sitting there around the fire with us. And we're all talking about, oh, I remember my first kiss, you know, da, 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 da. And my first time getting a little more raunchy and we're all sitting there kind of reminiscing and said something about, oh, I got my driver's license when this and my friend Matt kind of piped up and he says, I remember the last time I walked. And it kind of put it in perspective for you. And he's like, yeah, I, I, he was in eighth grade and they had to fuse his spine and he was really getting weak, but they, um, and, but he was going to get scoliosis really bad. So they're going to fuse his spine. And they said, once we do this and put these rods in your back, you'll never walk. And he said, the last time I walked was to get up from my chair and go to the operating tables for them to do the spinal surgery. And it just kind of like, okay, me talking about my, you know, 
not being able to get my driver's license at 16 and having to wait till I was 17 just seemed pretty petty. And so their perspective, I learned more from them about how to deal with your own mortality and how to make the most of life. And I, and I do live that way now. It's like, you know, I don't let my, my kids are grown. So now it's travel and see music shows and concerts and comedy, um, standup comedy stuff and that. And, and I kind of got that mindset that, you know, I'm going to make the most of whatever time I got here. Um, and I, and it's sad when people don't do that. You see them kind of waste their lives away. They have dreams and aspirations, but they just are frozen in an, in a moment in time and, and can't break out of that. And those MDA patients, um, really taught you that that's you're wasting your life and they would give their literal arm and leg to have the opportunities you do. So don't piss away your life when others are, are wanting to absolutely, um, would trade that everything they have just to have those inconveniences that you think are so serious dude that's uh that's an incredible life lesson philosophy did you you were doing going to i remember you talking about going to concerts and shows mm -hmm. before your brain tumor um did, did that kind of up the game a little bit doing them or did they mean more when you went to them? Um, definitely. Um, actually it's funny. Um, they mean more emotionally. Um, but there's a few things that my cancer has taken away from me. Um, I can't fly fish as much. I can only do it for short spurts, um, because I get cramping in the, my left hand and I'm left hand dominant. So that sucks. I can't play drums anymore. Um, you know, but one of the, the things that hurt the most is that it, I used to be able, because of my experiences with the patients of MDA and watching the example they set for me, um, is being able to be completely in a moment. And I find now, even when I go to concerts, bands that I absolutely love, bucket list bands, um, that my mind isn't letting me be completely in the moment. I'll get in the moment for a few and then something will pop up, whether it's work, mostly it's about, you know the finite mortality we have. And then I find I'm not sitting here listening to the music. I'm in my own head and I have to consciously make myself get out of that. Um, so the concerts mean more, but I, I would say what the impetus was to really start traveling is uh, artists that died that it was like, oh, we were gonna go see them. Prince, Tom Petty, you know, there's there's lots of artists that have passed away and it's like, I lost my opportunity. I'm not gonna let that happen again. And you know, like one of my favorite bands all time is the Eagles and I got to see him before Glenn Fry passed away, wow. you know, on the history of the Eagles tour. And so uh, it was like, yep, uh, you know, it just reinforces that you, you've got to embrace it. If you've got the means to do it without mortgaging your future, do it now because nothing is certain. That's a, that's an incredible life lesson. I, I, that may be the answer to the kind of the final question I wrap this up with is what advice would you give to young firefighters coming on the job? Is that it? Or is there more to it? Um, on the personal side of life, I would say, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, don't mortgage your future. I mean, always have the backup plan, you know, but, but live your life. Um, and as you get, evolve in the fire service, um, you just, know that you know life can be snuffed out at any moment um, especially if you run pre-hospital ems you just see a lot of things and you kind of that sinks in sometimes it takes longer sometimes guys pick up on it right away but you know realize the finite amount of time that we have on this planet and and embrace it um, from the career aspect i would say um there's a there's a good saying i'm sure it's you know, not unique to the missoula fire but that's where i heard it in missoula fire is 
do you have 20 years of experience or do you have one year's experience 20, 20 times? times. And, um, and that's something to be said. So the, the younger firefighters that are out there embrace education, embrace change. Um, the fire service is complete with today's technology and the things that we have. Um, you know, uh, there's a whole lot of new things that can be a very good benefit to you. Don't shun those because the old way um, still works. Um, embrace change, embrace the newness, um, and educate yourself constantly. Um, there, you, you'll never learn everything you need to know about the fire service or the world that we live in um, if you don't get education um, to, to back up the experience you're getting by responding. Wow. Yeah, well... <sighs> I am not on something that looks like wood here. Not have not gone through the the health scare that you did, but I I I, I remember the day our boss at NFPA we were on a, a group call with the, our team and literally everybody it it hit everybody in the gut. It was just a huge shock to us. Um, but the good news is, is I don't know four or five months later, you were back on those calls. Still having some health issues, but uh, even better, you're looking great today, and uh, you're back on the job and doing the, doing the NFPA good work out there. Going to Hawaii next week, <laughs> tough duty, I know. But, it uh, is, and you know, it's funny because my wife wants to, you know, I'll, I'll uh, go to Hawaii, and she'll be like, "Hey, can I tag along?" Sure, but when I go to Fargo, North Dakota in January, no, for some reason that doesn't seem near as appealing I, to I her. I don't understand Hawaii in December for the Hawaii Chiefs conference. When I present there, that's a great trip. But when I'm in Fargo, North Dakota, you know, and it's windy and cold, she's like, "Nah, I'll stick in Montana. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not all, as it's, cold here. It's, it's still cold and windy here, but uh, it's yeah. not Fargo. Exactly. Good deal." So. Well, Gary Honnold, thanks, uh, thanks for your time today, and thanks again for dinner last night and the hospitality here, and and kind of giving me some tips of where to go today for the rest of this road trip across Montana. You bet. We'll take a look at this giant map, and I'll give you some routes to. Oh, good lands. To I got, buck around. I've, I've got a week. I got to be back in Virginia, so I don't know if I got enough time. Which all that means is I'll be back. Yep, exactly. We'll have you. Well, thanks again, Gary. And uh, for anybody out there who wants to get in touch with Gary, shoot me an email. I'll pass it on to him. Firehouse Logbook at gmail .com, and make sure you follow along on. Social media is the Twitter handle is at FD Logbook and Instagram is at FD Logbook Podcast. And uh, check us out on Facebook too. I'll post some stuff up there. Uh, Gary, thanks again and uh, thanks to everybody for listening. You bet. Thanks, Robbie. Thank you, everybody. Uh -huh.